Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. We're back again today for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you out there for joining us for uh, the show today. Um, We're going to spend a good portion, most of today's show, talking about one of the jewels, uh, I think many people would agree, of Atlanta, and that's that we are the home to the Centers for Disease Control, an agency that has been in the news a lot uh, since the pandemic began, which has a storied and fabled history, and which now some people believe is being sidelined by the administration, even as the fight against coronavirus moves forward. And we're going to be joined by um, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who spent 20 years at CDC. We'll introduce him more formally in just a couple of minutes. But before we get to that, it's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me. If you're an AJC reader, man, you've been reading a lot of copy from her over the last four days uh, since the sad passing of John Lewis. She has written uh, his obituary and uh, many other pieces. Tamar, uh, congratulations on some terrific work. I'm very proud of the work that uh, we did here at GPB in uh, commemorating uh, uh, Congressman Lewis, but but you certainly deserve a pat on the back. You you filed some terrific stories, Tamar. Thank you. He had quite the life to to tell about. Amazing, just just astonishing. Um, all right, let's though, Tamar, talk about an odd coincidence of timing. Yesterday, even while the United States House of Representatives was paying tribute to John Lewis, pausing for a moment of silence, bringing members to the floor who typically had not been congregating because of fears about the spread of the virus, but who felt they needed to be there uh, to pay tribute to John Lewis, even while that was happening in Washington and while people across the 5th District and beyond were uh, 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 mourning him as well, the state Democratic Party was in a position where it had to replace John Lewis's name. He had won the nomination for the 5th District Congressional seat in November. He was running, of course, as a 32-plus-year incumbent. Uh, and state law required that the Democratic Party notify the state, the, the um, Secretary of State, whether they planned to put someone else on the ballot, and they went ahead and said, yes, we're going to put someone on it, and they chose, the state party executive committee chose State Senator Nakima Williams. It was a very hasty process, but Nakima Williams will uh, will be on the ballot uh, in his place. Uh, Tamar, talk about that. Yeah, it's also worth noting, of course, that she's the chairwoman of the Democratic Party of Georgia, so she she really did have the inside track. Um, the the party uh, did, took the very unorthodox move of of kind of replicating what Governor Kemp did after Johnny Isaacson. Uh, announced he was going to step down from his position, opening up an online application process. They got more than 100 applicants over the weekend who submitted answers to a six-question application. And uh, a group of about a dozen party insiders this this weekend kind of went through and selected five finalists. Among them, of course, 
Senator Williams. We saw State Rep. Park Cannon. You saw the head of the Georgia NAACP, um, a party elder, um, a uh, Morehouse College uh, leader. And, and so they were meeting on Zoom on, on Monday in a very unorthodox kind of meeting. And they had until 4 p.m. to decide who they wanted to pick. And, and you could tell it was a, a tough moment for everyone. It, um, they, they, there are a couple of interesting things about this. First, about Nakima Williams herself. Uh, number one, she's the, she was the first African-American woman elected chair of the state Democratic Party. So in that sense, uh, a breakthrough uh, political leader. Um, she uh, has worked in, uh, as an activist for many years, Planned Parenthood, uh, part of her credentials. She's worked in uh, union activity over the years. She's kind of, in, in that sense, uh, on a track not completely dissimilar from John Lewis, an activist-turned-political leader, right? And she cited John Lewis as a, as a mentor of hers. Um, you know, she's gotten to know him over the years. Part of her state Senate district is in the 5th Congressional District, and her husband also worked for John Lewis for a time. So she talked about that a lot and how... Um, how crummy the situation was where you know, everyone is mourning the loss of such a great leader, but they also had to scramble to get somebody else on the ballot um, for November or else risk leaving his name on there and then immediately triggering a special election in January. Uh, folks didn't want that, um, or a lot of people didn't want that, but a lot of John Lewis's former top aides did. They said that was something that John Lewis believed in very firmly, the idea of the people, not some sort of executive committee being able to to pick who's going to run for office or who's going to be. Yeah, the his chief of staff. Yeah, yeah Michael, Michael Lewis. Uh, John, I mean, I'm sorry, Michael Collins, John Lewis's longtime chief of staff was one of those. Yesterday on Political Rewind, Michael Thurmond, uh, chairman of the Cab County uh, a CEO of DeKalb County uh, said that he would have preferred if they had picked a placeholder, you know, and now Democrats are saying the day after selecting Nakima Williams that they really do want to clean up this process that, that the state has put in place that calls for such a swift decision uh, to be made on finding a replacement. But uh, let's listen to Nakima Williams uh, after she uh, won the votes of the executive committee. He showed me the value of putting myself, sometimes physically, in between the dangerous policies that the most vulnerable communities are hurt by. Nobody could possibly fill the shoes of Congressman Lewis. Nakima Williams, uh, uh, after being named the successor on the ballot to John Lewis. Tamar, she, this is about the safest Democratic seat, certainly in the state, and one of the safest in the country. It is unlikely uh, that she will have too much trouble winning election in November, right? Exactly. And then once you're an incumbent on Capitol Hill, it becomes really hard to, to catch up with somebody. This is a district that went for Hillary Clinton by something like 80 percentage points in 2016. So it's, it's a pretty safe seat. And she makes history. She's the first woman to have ever held this seat. Um, and it's a very high profile position replacing John Lewis. So there's going to be a lot of pressure for her to take up a lot of the same issues, including voting rights that uh, that John Lewis really stood for. Um, and it comes with an enormous amount of national attention. The uh, major uh, n- uh, national newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they were all reporting this morning uh, in prominent uh, places on their pages 
uh, that Nakima Williams was the Democratic nominee replacing him. So we will certainly follow her campaign in the months ahead. Um, but we wanted to uh, update you on all that. At the same time, update you on the fact that we are still waiting for details of the funeral arrangements that are going to be made for John Lewis. The family has made it fair, pretty clear that, you know, we lost two great civil rights leaders uh, virtually at the same time, uh, John Lewis, of course, but C.T. Vivian, who was not as well known as, as John Lewis, of course, but he was the intellectual of the movement. He was the thinker of the movement. He had an astonishing career both in civil rights and then later uh, working in the city uh, of Atlanta, working on issues for in the city of Atlanta and beyond. Um, and so uh, his funeral is now set for Thursday at Providence Missionary Baptist Church. Our good friend Gerald Durley is going to uh, 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 conduct the services for him. And the Lewis family has, out of respect to the Vivians, decided to hold off announcing their plan. So we'll keep you updated on all that as it moves forward, too. All right. Um, Let's move ahead with a conversation that we've, uh, I've really been looking forward to. Uh, I want, we're going to talk about the CDC today. Um, an agency, and I'm going to give you just a brief, very, very brief history of CDC in Atlanta and then introduce uh, our, our Mark Rosenberg. Um, CDC was founded in 1946. It, it it had the same initials, but it didn't have that name. In those days, it was called the Communicable Disease Center. It opened in an office building in Atlanta. It's always been based here. And in those days, it was founded because uh, in the South, because malaria was a, a terrible, terrible problem in southern states particularly. And so the agency was founded with something like $10 million to take on a fight against malaria. It has morphed into a much bigger, much more comprehensive agency since then. And one of the people who devoted 20 years of his career uh, to that agency was Dr. Mark Rosenberg. Dr. Rosenberg, you've done Political Rewind before. I'm awfully glad to have you back today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Bill. It's nice to be here with you, and thanks for covering this important issue. Um, we're going to talk about uh, uh, what's happening today with CDC, obviously. Um, it was just a week ago today that HHS, Health and Human Services, announced that uh, the data that normally was collected by CDC from hospitals, health centers around the country, uh, that they would collect on COVID-19 cases, was now going to be collected instead, was now to be sent to another, to HHS and, a, and an entity there. But before we get there, Mark Rosenberg, um, tell us how the mission of CDC from those early years in the 40s uh, morphed into an agency that worked on so many communicable diseases and other health problems. Talk to us just a little about that, if you will. Well, thanks, Bill. I think it's important to realize what CDC is responsible for. Basically, it's responsible for protecting us. Infectious diseases is just one thing that it protects us for. Let me just mention some of the diseases that it's been involved with and where it's done an extraordinary job. Polio, smallpox, legionnaires, Ebola, Rye syndrome, HIV AIDS, 
E. coli outbreaks, anthrax, SARS, Ebola, HIV and hepatitis and Zika, and swine flu. This is just a few of the diseases that CDC is charged with protecting us from. And in 1978, then director of CDC, Bill Fage, said, you know, in this country, people are not dying primarily from infectious diseases. And this agency started as focused on a single infectious disease, malaria, then spread out to other tropical diseases, then to include all the outbreaks that I've mentioned, plus many other infectious diseases. And he said, but this is not what Americans are dying from. He said, we're dying from chronic diseases, heart disease, kidney failure, diabetes, and cancer. And we're dying from non-disease causes. We're dying from environmental pollutants, and we're dying from injuries, and we're dying from violence. And he said, let's reorganize CDC and take on this broader agenda of health problems where we could serve very well to protect the nation. So he reorganized CDC, and then it changed from the Communicable Disease Center and Center for Disease Control to Centers for Disease Control. It later became the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The purpose of this is to say that we expect a lot from CDC, and CDC and public health have always been underfunded. It's an underfunded mandate. Protect us from all these things. Protect us from these infectious disease. Protect us from chronic disease. Protect us from gun violence. Protect us from car crashes. And oh yes, we're not going to give you enough money to do this. So what does CDC do? The people at CDC work extra hard. The people at CDC now are working 16 to 18 hours a day. Um, but this is what CDC does. This is its mission. You know, as I've reported um, one on, of the things, on... Tamar... Oh, go ahead, Bill. No, no, no. Please, Tamar. You know, one of the things I've, I've as I was a reporter on Capitol Hill over the years, it, it, CDC was such a political darling. Everyone agreed with, with what they were doing, and we're very proud of, of them, especially in the Georgia delegation. But something, as I've interviewed experts about this, the, the problem with, with the underfunding of, of public health is that if everything is going well, if, if the, the doctors and the PhDs and the epidemiologists at CDC are doing their job, that means that nothing happens. You know, people, more people aren't dying of communicable diseases. You're, you're not seeing the success. There's not that instant payoff in that same way that, that maybe in a war, if you win a battle, that, that lawmakers can see instantly and say, oh, this is a success. What they're doing is averting catastrophe, which they've done extremely well over the years at the CDC. But it makes it a little bit harder when you're making that case up on Capitol Hill. Hey, you should be giving us all the money that we're asking for because X, Y, and Z. Um, so, so that's certainly been a challenge long-term as, as the allies have been seeking more money from Congress. It's interesting if you compare sure. CDC and NIH. NIH basically finds treatments for diseases to treat diseases. And when people have a disease and then get treated, they are immensely grateful. And they do what the doctor says because the doctor walks in when they're suffering. 
And these people are so appreciative of being relieved of their suffering or the suffering of their parents or their children or their siblings that they're immensely grateful. And what prevention does, what CDC does, is basically keep the people from ever being aware that they were even threatened. What do we have to be thankful for? Why should we be grateful to CDC for telling us they they prevented us from diseases we never felt were threatening us? So people don't support it because NIH has a tremendous lobbying group. They have all of the academic research centers and health centers that are able to lobby. CDC's supporters are state and local health departments that are forbidden from lobbying. So they don't get enough money, they don't get recognized, public health isn't appreciated, and it's underfunded, and they're supposed to do everything to protect us and keep us safe. It's really quite a dilemma where they find themselves. So I'm just before we move on, uh, I just want to talk about focus on a couple of issues that I've watched CDC over the years deal with. Um, First of all, uh, Mark Rosenberg, uh, the weekly morbidity and mortality report that CDC publishes has long been a standard for giving us an understanding of just what's out there in terms of diseases, uh, injuries, and uh, other chronic illnesses that are leading uh, to death. Um, and and uh, for a long time as a reporter, uh, Mark, that was a, that was a weekly report that I paid a great deal of attention to. It was a snapshot of the health of the country uh, every week. Yes? Yes. And what made it more powerful was that people trusted it. If you don't trust the data, you lose your credibility, you lose your authority. We've already talked about how hard it is to get people to follow prevention guidelines. And then if you undermine the trust in an institution, you've lost the game. And that's happening now. CDC has been a reliable and credible authority on everything from when and how to immunize your children to how to protect yourself from HIV and Ebola and COVID-19. But when that authority is undermined and you lose the credibility, you lose the ability to affect public behavior and public trust. And one of the first things that happens in most epidemics is that people get afraid. And when people are fearful, they're not thoughtful. And what happens is that people turn against authorities. They turn against their neighbors. They turn against marginalized groups. And this happens. And if you feed that, there's a loss of trust, there's a loss of cohesion. And what's needed is to build that trust. And that's the job of leadership in any epidemic, is to build the trust and sustain the trust. If you want people to follow CDC's recommendations for when and how to immunize you and your family against COVID-19, if you want people to get the shots, If you want that to happen, they have to trust CDC. And if you undermine that trust, you're setting yourself up for a huge problem because after the vaccine is developed, it has to be injected. It has to be given to people. People have to want it. And we're setting ourselves up to fail by shooting ourselves not in the foot, but about four feet higher up. (laughs) 
Um, let's talk about your. We're we're, we're going to turn the, the corner and talk about the uh, how how politics has played a role in the Centers for Disease Control and the way it it gets its message out, the work it's doing on COVID nineteen, but. But, Mark, I, th- I think the most instructive tale about politics infecting a CDC takes us back to you in the late 1990s. Uh, you were a founder. You were one of the people most instrumental in creating the Center for Injury Prevention and Control uh, at CDC. And one of the uh, issues that you were most concerned about back in the 90s was being able to gather data, comprehensive and reliable data, on gun violence. Have I got that right? You do, Bill. You do. In the 1980s, Bill Fagey invited me back to CDC to start looking at violence as a public health problem. And one of the first things we did was look around. There were two leading causes of injury death in this country. One was motor vehicle crashes. The other was guns. And we looked at motor vehicle crashes, the history, and in the 1960s, this country had an epidemic of young people dying on the highways from car crashes. And Congress said, this is unacceptable, so many young people dying. And they said, we're going to start a research program, and we're going to use science to prevent these deaths. And in 1970, they put $200 million into research and create the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They have put $200 million into motor vehicle research every year since then. And what that did was it brought about a minor miracle. It reduced the road traffic deaths tremendously by redesigning cars. They discovered seat belts and airbags, front airbags, side airbags, front impact protection, rollover protection, engine blocks that crushed like an accordion in a front-end collision. They redesigned the roads. They redesigned the drivers and got impaired drivers off the roads. And since 1970, they have saved more than 600,000 lives, basically by research and science. And we said, let's look at gun violence. That's the other leading cause of injury death. And maybe if we use science for that and did some research, we could do the same thing. We could save some of these thirty to 40,000 lives that are lost every single year. So we started an effort to use science and to fund research looking at how to prevent gun violence. This was not very popular, though, especially with the NRA, because the first study, extramural research study we funded, looked at the question, does having a gun in your home really protect you? or Might it put your family at greater risk? And what this study showed was that not only did having a gun in your home not protect you, the NRA had been saying, if you are a real man, if you care about your family, you'll have a gun in your home. It turned out that having a gun in your home put your family at much, much greater risk. The risk that someone in your home would die from a gun homicide went up 200%. It tripled. The risk that someone in your family would die from gun suicide went up 400%, a five-fold increase. The NRA didn't like that, and they decided they'd put us out of business, and they began attacking us. And there were multiple attacks that led to a large confrontation in 1996 in Congress when we went to defend our 
appropriation. Yeah, we should say in 1996, Congressman Jay Dickey, a Republican from Arkansas, uh, introduced legislation to ban CDC and you, I mean, not you by name, but nevertheless, the work that you were identified with said no longer can CDC do this work. Uh, Congress put a stop to it, right? Essentially, yes. They sent off a shot across the bow, although they didn't forbid research. What they did was they prohibited promotion or advocacy of gun control. And this came to a showdown. And in 1999, I was fired from CDC, essentially because I was the main person identified as supporting gun violence prevention research. And I think it was a very sad day for CDC because the director of CDC thought that it was more important to protect his job than to protect the science. Um, And again, that was a sad day, but this goes back the threat to CDC directors, a political threat and whether or not they stand up to it. That's um, exactly uh, uh, the right way to end this segment of the show, uh, to say that your ta- the, the story of your 20 years at CDC and how it came to an end is a cautionary tale about how uh, CDC, how, how politics can, in fact, become intertwined with the work of CDC. So let's take a break, and when we come back, let's talk about that today in terms of the coronavirus. You're listening to Political Rewind. On Political Rewind today, senior Atlanta General Constitution reporter Tamar Hallerman, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, uh, who spent 20 years at CDC, by the way, went on to be the CEO of the Task Force for Global Health, a $2 billion a year nonprofit organization that that's, uh, lives right in Decatur and uh, works on global uh, disease in uh, really remarkable ways. Um, Tamar Hallerman, this brings us to the, to the present. Um, it, as I said at the top of the show, it was a week ago today that uh, HHS announced that the traditional method of hospitals reporting data about an infectious disease to CDC was going to change. That uh, starting immediately, uh, uh, data was not to be reported to CDC, but rather to an entity at Health and Human Services bypassing CDC, and this caused an uproar, Tamar, among many in the public health sector who were convinced this was a way for Washington to control uh, data and and release it or not release it as they chose to. But it certainly bypassed, as we described in the first segment, Tamar, the very traditional role that CDC has played in epidemics. Yeah, it was a really quiet change that they kind of put on their website, didn't really announce it with any sort of fanfare. But when people saw it, people freaked out because they saw it as a way to undermine CDC. You know, HHS is is kind of the parent umbrella organization for the CDC. The CDC is one of 11 agencies that kind of follow fall under HHS's purview. And the way I describe it to people, CDC, they're the subject matter experts when it comes to epidemiology, when it comes to infectious diseases. HHS, they're more of the generalists. They're a little more political. They have more political appointees. They're, um, you know, the CDC is more kind of insulated from, um, from Congress and the, the political winds. And you saw immediately 
after a lot of folks started freaking out about this data reporting change for, for hospitals reporting COVID data, um, the White House, HHS, CDC, you know, they're saying, look, not that much is changing. CDC still has access to the data. This is going to improve the speed upon which we can get this information. Uh, but it's very important to note that the CDC will no longer control it. Um, so you saw Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC, say, you know, don't worry, guys, it's going to be fine. But a lot of folks that rely on that data outside of the government, like reporters, uh, universities, people who do independent modeling of, of diseases, they're really nervous that their access is going to be cut off. Mark Rosenberg, what do you make of uh, this move to uh, uh, send information to HHS, not to CDC? Well, I think you have to look at the context in which it's occurring. And this is occurring in a context where we've seen systematic destruction of the scientific capacity to address big problems. Look at our capacity to address climate change and environmental changes. That has been systematically undercut and the data have been destroyed. And so I think this occurs in an atmosphere where there's justified suspicion of the support for science. I think it's also occurring where the administration has said that this pandemic is going to magically disappear. The data haven't shown that it's magically disappearing, but if the data can be controlled, you can make it magically disappear if you want to use this to support a campaign for re-election. And I think this is fueling the mistrust of what happens. Yeah, this comes during a time when you see all sorts of reports of, um, you know, unnamed senior White House officials trashing the CDC saying they're you know, they're um, undermining what the president is doing or, you know, they're looking for a scapegoat with the coronavirus response and, and kind of considering using CDC on the campaign trail. You've also seen uh, Dr. Redfield and other top officials walking back a lot of the things that they said initially. For example, in April, Dr. Redfield was warning a lot about um, the potential for a really crushing second wave of coronavirus cases, which he later walked back. You saw, um, you know, or, or you heard about the CDC formulating guidance for schools that are trying to reopen amid the pandemic and having to, to take a pause or, or kind of delay releasing it due to, or at least what seems to be political pressure. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of a, a backdrop that you have to look at it, you know, at. And you talk to the CDC, the, their leadership, and they say, no, we're still doing the same work we always have. But you talk to people like Dr. Rosenberg who say, uh, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Mark? Not at all the way it's supposed to be. And Tamara is absolutely right that CDC has been sidelined side and censored. I mean, the degree of control of what comes out of CDC, it's even before this latest move to take the data away. And the data are the lifeblood of CDC. That's what CDC does. They gather data, they analyze it, they feed it back and they act based on it. And you take the data and the information away, you really uh, neutralize the ability of an agency to work well. And uh, this is what's happening. But uh, I think people inside of CDC are furious at being censored this way. I think people are, I'm sad 
at this way to treat people who are working so 24-7 to help this nation defend itself. And I'm scared about what's going to happen when we have to have a reliable source to turn to, and we will have destroyed the credibility and trust. There's no transparency in this latest move. And uh, those are all necessary to have trust in our institutions. And in a pandemic, you're screwed if you don't have trust in your institutions and in your leadership. People naturally turn to fear during this kind of event. They turn against their neighbors. They turn against the people who wear masks. They turn against the people who don't move over to walk six feet away. And this is where you need leadership to bring people together and to give us a clear vision of where we're going and what we need to do. And in the absence of that, when you undermine the institutions, you have a real serious problem. Um, Mark, let, let's talk um, at the same time. You are a, you are a, a, a ferocious defender of the work of, of CDC, clearly. Um, I think it's also fair to say that there were some self-inflicted wounds during the early days of the pandemic, particularly, that opened CDC up for being challenged the way it appears to be now, right? I mean, first of all, there was the problem uh, with the test kits that CDC sent out, which turned out to be compromised. They couldn't be used. Uh, at another stage in this, CDC had to admit that it was conflating uh, different kinds of result antibody tests with uh, virus tests and sending out data that put them together in a way that was misleading. Uh, to be quite candid, Dr. Redfield has uh, been criticized for not being a terribly a strong spokesperson, not being willing to get out there and speak strongly on behalf of the agency in terms of the work it's doing. I mean, those are self-inflicted wounds that opened the door for some of this. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. I want to go back to what you said, Bill. So you picked up that I'm a fierce defender of CDC. That's not so subtle. <laughs> and I think what I, what I should say is that I'm a fierce defender of CDC, despite having been fired from that organization. <laughs> and yeah. that was personally devastating to me. I had committed so much of my time, taking time away from my kids and my family to travel and work to get violence prevention started. So, yes, I am a fierce defender of CDC, but we've known for 30 years that our public health infrastructure in this country is inadequate. It's a patchwork of state and local health departments, and it's a CDC that's inadequately funded to do the job it has to do. 30 years ago, the Institute of Medicine put out a report that called attention to our nation's crumbling public health system, and in the 30 years we haven't done better. We haven't funded it where it should be. Is it a surprise that CDC has made mistakes? No. Is it disappointing? Yes. But any agency, especially under pressure, is going to be imperfect, as are all of us, all of us. And so I think the best thing CDC can do is to learn from its mistakes and try to continuously improve. And I think they're working very hard to do that. Is the director always the most articulate spokesperson? 
No, but these are human beings trying to do their best. And I think we need to keep the agency going and help it do better rather than undermine it and stop it. One thing I've heard even from the, the biggest advocates for the CDC, something they'd like to see right now is more visibility from them, just communicating to the public exactly what they know about this, uh, this new virus and exactly what they don't. And in past pandemics, or not pandemics, but past um, flare-ups of infectious diseases, you saw them every single day almost giving media briefings, being out in the public eye, communicating to folks what we know. And you really haven't seen that from the CDC during the, the coronavirus. They, they stopped their, their daily briefings back in February after one of Dr. Redfield's top deputies uh, issued really dire warnings about where, where the coronavirus was, which was way more dire than the message coming from the Trump administration. And so that's a way that, that a lot of folks think the CDC can be, build credibility. And the good thing is you, you look at public opinion polls about who they trust in terms of information about the coronavirus, and still more than three quarters say they, they trust the CDC, which is a good thing. Um, but uh, I, I'm going to be curious to see what, what the numbers are going to be among Trump supporters and Republicans. And I think there's a danger once it becomes partisan. Tamara is absolutely right in what she said. And I think if you look at why CDC has been sidelined and why it's being basically locked up and censored out is not because it made mistakes, but because it spoke the truth. That's why CDC is being sidelined. That's why they're being pushed aside. That's why the data are being taken away, not because they've made mistakes. They made mistakes and they can recover and they can learn, but they're being sidelined because they speak the truth. And what Tamar says is absolutely the necessary thing. CDC has to start getting out there every day with the data. They have to be transparent. They have to share the data, even when the data aren't good. They have to tell the truth. That's the only way people will be able to trust them and respect them and believe that our government is going down the right path. The issue right now, though, is, you know, Donald Trump, I think, sees the coronavirus response in general as a campaign issue now. It's a real test of his leadership, which is absolutely true. And you see him now make this decision to start resuming the coronavirus task force briefings um, if not every day, then a couple times a week as a way to kind of communicate what he's been doing to the public. But in, in those venues, it's kind of been hard for um, not only Dr. Redfield and the CDC, but, but Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks to really get their message out beyond kind of him filibustering and, and kind of giving out his message too. So it, it's hard when, when the White House response kind of sucks up a lot of the political oxygen, especially if your message doesn't necessarily conform to what the, the president is saying all the time. Yeah, I think what the president so, um, is let doing. Me... Go ahead. I was just going to say, Bill, that he's taken these very dedicated public servants, uh, Tony Fauci, the leadership at CDC, especially Anne Schuchat, whose life has been working on viral diseases. He's taken these public servants and 20,000 more public servants at CDC, and he's trying to make them private servants. Servants that serve one person and his reelection. And that's such a transgression uh, that should scare all of us when that happens. Um, 
I want to, I want, but I want to put this in a different context and play devil's advocate to some extent right here because Mark Rosenberg, I think you've said, and Tamara seconded this, something terribly important. Mark Rosenberg, you said, of course, CDC isn't perfect; it makes mistakes. Um, and and one of the the issues here, Mark, you've talked about it being underfunded, uh, and one of the issues here is that. It, it, there have been some significant issues. Just uh, from the New York Times reporting, uh, I, I sent, shared this with you, Mark Rosenberg, and tomorrow, and I'd love your response to it. Um, Mark, the uh, headline of the article is, the CDC spent its whole life waiting for this moment. What went wrong? And, and here's, here's one paragraph from that reporting uh, which talks about the change from CDC collecting data and HHS getting the data. The change exposes the vast gaps in the government's ability to collect and manage health data. An antiquated system at best, experts say. The CDC has been collecting coronavirus data through its National Health Care Safety Network, which was expanded at the outset of the pandemic to track hospital capacity and patient information specific to COVID-19. But there were problems with that collection, and hospitals were saying that that data didn't seem to be getting into down the pipeline for CDC to make use of. So Mark Rosenberg, again, this exposes, as the New York Times article says, the much larger problem of whether it's HHS collecting data or CDC, we don't do it very well in any of our federal agencies. And so I really like the New York Times, but they're kind of 30 years <laughs> oh, behind the time. 30 years ago, the Institute of Medicine told us that CDC and the whole public health system is antiquated, outdated, inadequate to track and use and analyze and apply data. 30 years. Okay, New York Times. So, so what's new? Fix it. Fix it. Put the money in. Fix the system. Let CDC do better. Give them the capacity to improve. Give every state health department the capacity to serve its people. We don't fund these things. How do we expect it to be perfect? So, yes, the system is not at its best, and it could be and should be improved. I absolutely agree. But don't give it to a private contractor that people don't trust and who's not going to be transparent to any degree with the data. That that makes complete sense. I, I was not suggesting that CDC shouldn't have the ability, shouldn't be given the ability to be, be, continue being, uh, in, in the long run, the major agency that deals with all of this sort of thing. Uh, but simply to point out that this problem has lingered for uh, quite a long time. And Mark, I know we got to get to a break, but, but I want to take one minute to, to have you say this. I know one of the reasons for your fierce defense of CDC has to do with the fact that you are well aware of the hundreds and hundreds of epidemiologists, other healthcare workers who have given their careers, their lives, to do, completing the mission of CDC. And, and I know you're unhappy about any notion that they should be marginalized or a cloud should be cast over their heads. Right? Absolutely. And we've been talking about CDC and the role it plays in our country's response to COVID. But when we come back, maybe we can talk about the international aspects and how CDC has helped 50 countries 
around the world and 200 countries that depend on it. Dr. Rosenberg, it sounds like you're getting the knack of knowing how to throw it to a break. I'll take from here. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. A couple of quick program notes before we uh, finish up the show today. Uh, first of all, you've heard Dr. Bill Fagey's name mentioned a few times. Uh, he was a mentor, I think it's safe to say to you, Mark Rosenberg, certainly a colleague. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are interested in his career, uh, back in the first week of July, we replayed an hour conversation I had with Bill Fagey about his work in eradicating smallpox. It is a fascinating conversation. He is a true giant in the public health world. And you can find that interview on our podcast or on the website at gpnews.org. And if you're at all interested in public health, I really think uh, you'll uh, find that interview fascinating. Uh, And finally, tomorrow we're back to a political show. Uh, Part of our A-team will be here, our political scientists who will talk about all that's happening in politics. Uh, Tamar Hallerman's with us. Dr. Rosenberg, uh, you, you want to talk about uh, CDC and its worldwide efforts. Why don't you give us a, just a snapshot of that with just because we only have so much time left. Sure. And I would say Bill Fagey has been an extraordinary and beloved mentor to me and for hundreds or thousands of people working in public health around the world. Um, and talking about Bill Fagey, in terms of what CDC could do internationally, when Dave Sensor was the director of CDC, he preceded Bill as director. He asked Bill to look at how could CDC have the greatest impact on health around the world, not just in the U.S. And he said CDC is never likely to have the kind of resources that could let us have a big impact directly. But Bill said, what if we figure out the six places around the world where decisions are made, and what if we assign the best officers from CDC to those places? They started with the World Health Organization in Geneva, and they've assigned many people to WHO. There may be 100 people from CDC working there. And then they said, let's also assign someone to UNICEF, someone to the World Bank, someone to the World Health Organization, regional offices. And in this way, CDC has had an impact on countries around the world. There are now people assigned from CDC to more than 50 different countries. And those people look at CDC's recommendations for how to proceed. They're dependent on us. Um, Mark Rosenberg, you make a good point. And tomorrow, with a little bit of time we have left here, um, one of the other things that's worth pointing out in this conversation is that, as Mark points out, CDC is involved with international agencies like WHO, like World Bank. They've worked on polio eradication with those agencies for a long, long time now. And that's another thing where the current administration has chosen to pull us away from WHO, doesn't want involvement with uh, global health organizations, and and that is going to have consequences down the line, too, tomorrow. Exactly. And and not only that, but but the CDC has also been on the ground in places like Africa to help eradicate Ebola on the spot before it gets to a place like the U.S. And I think that's a mission of theirs that that's a little bit underappreciated. And you, you talk to people now who are very concerned about the CDC losing credibility in Washington or not being able to get funding for future uh, missions. And that's something they talk about a lot to build support. 
I um, think we could say all right. that all of. Go ahead, Mark. This is this is not the last pandemic we're going to see, and it's not a question of if we're going to have another. It's a question of when we're going to have another. And the very best thing we can do to protect our country is to detect these early on, where they arise in the countries where they come from. The best thing we can do for our health here is to protect people and stop diseases over there before they emerge, before they rise to the level of a global pandemic. And that means working with, with countries around the world. We can protect us. All right. Um, we are just about out of time for today. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg, Tamar Hellerman, uh, Tamar, you mentioned that one of the things that's going to be fascinating to watch is President Trump has announced he's going to resume his coronavirus briefings uh, at 5 o'clock this afternoon. As you said, Tamar, we don't know how often he'll do them, whether he'll do them daily again. I think one of the things that's going to be interesting, Tamar, is will Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks both be with him? Burks has shown herself to be a true a functionary of the administration. Fauci's an outlier. Will he be there uh, this afternoon at 5 tomorrow? That'll be really interesting to watch, won't it? Exactly. And how much they'll let him talk. (laughs) That's exactly right. And whether they will let CDC have a voice at all. If they don't, we're in trouble. Dr. Mark Rosenberg, thank you so much for your perspective today. It's a great pleasure to have you on Political Rewind. Uh, Tamar, thank you as usual for being part of our Tuesday show. As I said, we're back tomorrow. We're going to talk politics. There's a lot going on that we're going to uh, get to on the show. In the meantime, we're out of time. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for listening to us today. Please take care and stay healthy. See you tomorrow.